0: I want to thank Mr. Witt for the introduction. As he said, my name is Tyler Martin, and I'm ecstatic would be a word to, that, I am, um, that would describe me being here with you guys this morning. Um, let's see here. Y'all want to try out something a little bit different this morning? Is that okay with y'all? All right, this is something I like to do whenever I uh, get to uh, talk about God's Word. Um, I like to recite the Shema together as a congregation. Do y'all know what the Shema is? All right, the Shema is the greatest commandment given by our Lord in, in the Gospels as recited in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Does anyone know what the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your, all of your strength. Would y'all be okay if we recite that together this morning? Would y'all be okay with that? Alright, now I need everyone to stand up for this. I know we, we got we got y'all nice and comfy, we're going to get you back up for a moment. Now we're not going to do this in boring old English, okay? We're all too comfortable with that. So we're going to do it in Hebrew. You all excited about that? Now how many of you how many of you know Hebrew? You know Hebrew? Can you do this, Shema? Do you want to lead us or do you you, you want me to do that? Okay. <laughs> That, you're the first person I've had that's know, that knows Hebrew. So she can grade me if my Hebrew is correct or not. All right? So we're going to do it in Hebrew. Okay, So what we're going to do, we're just going to say it line by line. I'm going to say it first, and then you'll repeat it after me. That sound okay? And then we'll do it in English the same way. I'll say it, and then you'll repeat the same line after me. That sound good? Now, there's two things that you need to know before we do this. The first thing is something about Hebrew phonetics. Okay, They make this weird noise. It's kind of like a cat choking on a hairball, kind, of, kind of like a sound, okay, so on the on the count of three, I need everybody to practice their best cat choking on a hairball voice, can you do it, one, two, three, y'all sound silly, that's pretty, that's, <laughs> all right, so now you can speak Hebrew, um, the second thing we're going to do is we're going to raise our right pinky in the air, okay, Now, to this day, Jews in Jewish temple will still recite this uh, Shema together uh, in in their worship gatherings, okay? Um, And we're going to raise our right pinky in the air because it shows the power of God. If God can hold the entire world with the palm of his hand, he can save you with the outstretch of his pinky, okay? So that's why I'm raising my right pinky. If you're wondering why we're not raising our left pinky, well, they didn't have toilet paper back then. So we're going to keep our right pinkies in the air, okay? So, line after line, just repeat after me Shema Israel. Shema Israel. Adonai Elihimu. Adonai, Adonai Chad. Chad. Vehafta. Ed Adonai. Eloeha. Uvho. Navavha. Uvho. Nath Sheha, sheha, Uvho, Meodeha, Hero Israel, Israel. the Lord our God, the Lord Lord is one, one. you shall love the Lord your God God. with all of your heart, with all of your your soul, with all of your your mind, mind. and all all of your strength, and you shall love your neighbor. As you, as you love yourself. Amen. All right, have a seat. Round of applause for everybody. That was awesome Hebrew. Now y'all could all go teach a Hebrew class, right? All right, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 is where we will be this morning. And as you're turning there, I want you to be thinking about this image that is has a consistent presence in the Bible. If you read the Bible enough, you will see the Lord uh, command over and over and over again for parents to raise their children in the ways of the Lord. The command is to teach your children the statutes, the laws, and the ways of the Lord. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for this, to include uh, familial stability, communal development, even economic success. But I think it is clear in God's Word that God intends for parents to raise their children in the ways of the Lord— so that his ways may continue on throughout the generations. Parents raise their kids in the ways of the Lord. They grow into adulthood. They are walking the ways of the Lord, and they raise their children to do the same. And this goes on and on and on. Most of you in here are parents or grandparents. And so you know the incredible joy it is when you raise your kids in the ways of the Lord, and they, they are in adulthood walking in those ways. Oh, that's such a sweet blessing that is to, to see that in your child. In turn, it is also one of the world's deepest sorrows to raise your kids in the ways of the Lord and see them reject that when they're an adult. Perhaps some of you may be experiencing this this morning. Well, it is this image and this heavy weight of raising children in the ways of the Lord that I believe is going to help us to understand our text today in Philippians chapter 1 because I believe this is the relationship that Paul has with the Philippians. So I'm going to read our text, and then we'll, we'll dive into an outline. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. These are the words of the Apostle Paul written to the church at Philippi. But he did this under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that makes this God's word for us this morning. Read along with me. Starting in verse 8. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. With knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and the praise of God. If you'll pray with me, I am going to ask that the Lord works in this time. Our God, we, we, we're in your presence this morning. In your loving and gracious and merciful presence, God, that you have invited sinners to be in relationship with you, God. Oh, you're such a good God. Father, we are, we are here that you may work, and so, Father, I ask that by your word, through your spirit, that you, would, that you would change us this morning, that you would transform our minds to think differently about life, that you would fill our hearts with your spirit, Father, that you may change our desires from that which is selfish and, and, and bad to that which is good. God, would you transform us through your word, by your spirit, this morning. This is our request. Amen. What we have this morning is a prayer of Paul over the Philippians. Ultimately, what Paul is uh, praying for is that the believers in Philippians would become more like Jesus. The main idea of our text this morning in verses 8 through 11 is that through Christ, believers are empowered to increase in righteousness so that they can fulfill their call and bringing glory and praise to God. Let me repeat that. Through Christ, believers are empowered to increase in righteousness so as to, to fulfill their call to bring glory and praise to God. This is a letter written from a Christian to to a Christian church. So, this message this morning is for believers. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I'm so happy that you're here. Some of these things may not make a whole lot of sense to you. But, Instead of taking this word, I would invite you to take the Lord Jesus himself. And we'll get to that later. Um, but this is a this is a prayer of Paul over the Philippians. I see three main distinctions in this text uh, that will help us to unfold this prayer. In verses 8 through 9, I see the petition of the prayer. That is, Paul asks for something very specific for the Philippians. We're going to dive into that and see what he asks for. And then in verses ten through the first part of eleven, we see the purpose of the prayer. Why is Paul asking this of the Lord for the Philippian church? And then at the at the last part of verse eleven, we'll see the praise of the prayer, uh, the end goal, the end game. What is all this about? And guess what? Spoiler: alert, It's a, it's about God getting the glory. That's all it's about, y'all. It's all about God's glory, His name being high and exalted, and that's the purpose. That's the purpose of our of our walk with Christ. So, that is our outline this morning. Uh, I'll, I'll walk through the outline, and then at the end, I'll just give you some practical points of application, how we can take this text home with us um, and glorify God with our lives with it. However, before I dive into the outline, a little bit of context is going to help us to understand what's happening here in this letter. The church at Philippi was planted during Paul's second missionary journey, and it was the first church planted on the European continent. I'll get to that in a second and why that's significant. But it is important to know that the Philippian church was planted under some pretty miraculous circumstances. Paul didn't uh, really intend for it to happen. The Lord moved and the church was planted. And so uh, what I want you to do for just one moment is I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Paul. Okay? Okay. You have Paul, who was a Jew, that was hostile to this radicalized version of Judaism called Christianity. And he was attacking it, trying to save the faith. And we all know the story, right? Paul is on his way to Damascus, and he meets Jesus on that road going to Damascus, doesn't he? And and in Paul's conversion, God, Christ, calls Paul to the ministry of the Gentiles. That is to take the gospel to those who are not Jewish. Now, I want you to think just for one moment how big of a task this would have been. Up until this time, the gospel and the Christian movement had had seldom been outside of Jerusalem. So I imagine Paul's jaw hit the floor when Christ said, I want you to take the gospel to everybody else. (sighs) You can imagine that big of a task. You can see now why Paul abandoned everything. For the case of the gospel among the Gentiles, some people believe, I'm not, I'm not sure this is true or not, but some people make the argument that Paul, in fact, was married in his Jewish life, but when he was called to the gospel, it, it was such a, it was such a big task that he, that he left that marriage to, he left his wife behind to go minister to the Gentiles. I'm not sure, there's a lot of people that argue that, but that's, that's kind of speculation there. But it's interesting to still think about the monumental task to take the gospel to the nations. It, would, it required his entire life. And we know it was no easy task, right? He endured incredible amount of persecution and suffering to take the gospel to the nations. Think about the floggings, the stonings, the beatings, the imprisonments. The dude was shipwrecked three times. How many of you in here have been shipwrecked ever? I, I have not been shipwrecked ever, and I never plan on being shipwrecked, Okay. He was shipwrecked three times for the case of the gospel. God preserved his life and kept him moving for the gospel. Even in this letter, we know that Paul writes this letter from a Roman prison. What's what's incredible about this letter is that uh, it is is absolutely covered with the word joy. How How can someone be in a prison and be writing about the joy they have? Well, that's a man that knows Jesus. That's a man that's got Christ in his heart. Paul, that's the only thing that matters. If you've got Jesus, that's the only thing that matters. And so that's what he wants the Philippians to have, is to grow in their Christ-likeness. They, they have Jesus, you have Jesus, what else, what else would you want? Now, what is significant about Philippians being the first church on the European continent, is I think Paul would have had a special care for this church, as a parent would, over a child. Paul's been striving and toiling for the gospel, and he, he must be thinking at times, man, is this gospel really going? Are churches really being planted? Is the gospel really spreading? Well, then all of a sudden you have this church being planted on this whole new continent, and so you've got to imagine the incredible, incredible amount of joy that Paul would have had. Like, oh God, you're working and you're moving, despite the suffering, despite the persecution. I think Paul would have seen the Philippian church as a launching pad for the gospel for the continent of Europe. I think he sees it as kind of a, a a center focal point for the gospel to continue to spread. So I think Paul would have had an incredible amount of care for this church in particular because he wants them to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in one ano- in love of one another, so that they could be a beacon of shining light for the gospel for the rest of the European continent. In other words, I think in Paul's mind, how well it goes with the Philippian church is how well it's going to go with the gospel in Europe. Now, we know God is sovereign over his gospel and over his church, and he will do as he wills, but, but we still have human ways of thinking about the, these things, right? I think Paul was absolutely uh, in, intentional to make sure this church got it. He wanted them to grow in Christ's likeness and in love for one another. And I think think that message is captured here in the first part of the letter. So it is with that context that I want to dive into the outline, starting in verses 8 through 9 with the petition of the prayer. The petition of the prayer. Read with me again verses 8 through 9. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The first phrase we have here is, God is my witness. This is also significant for our context here in the Philippian church. Paul's writing from a Roman prison, and so uh, at this time in a lot of cities, to be associated with a prisoner brought cultural shame. So there were many in the Philippian church that wanted to disassociate or to get, to get away from Paul because he's in prison. And so uh, what Paul does here is he brings us into the, the context of a courtroom. A witness is somebody that a defendant will bring in to verify the case of something, That witness is brought in under an oath. The defendant brings in the witness under an oath. So in this case, Paul is in oath with God about the things he's about to testify to. And here's why this is significant. Because Paul is saying, look, I'm not concerning myself with the thoughts and the opinions of men. I concern myself with the thoughts and the opinions of God. It doesn't matter why man thinks I'm in prison. It only matters why God thinks I'm in prison. God knows I'm here and here for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what man thinks. And so I think he's calling out the Philippians saying, look, we don't concern ourselves with what the culture and what the world thinks. We concern ourselves with what God thinks. We do that through his word. And so he's saying, look, y'all, it's, it's about what God thinks. This, that's all that matters concerning this, this matter. For God is my witness. What is, God, what is God witnessing? How I yearn for you all. Paul here is expressing his deep love for the Philippian church. He wants them to know that he deeply loves and cares for them because we all know that action without love is meaningless. We know this from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that I can heal all diseases and I can speak in tongues and I can speak in prophecies and I can use my spiritual gifts for the church but if I don't love, I'm what? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Action without love is meaningless. Most of you, or perhaps many of you were like me growing up. I got some good uh, spankings when I was growing up. Okay, I got probably more than the average person. And so um, I could always tell when my dad would spank me out of a heart of anger or out of a heart of love. If he spanked me out of anger, I was hostile to the discipline. Well, I was always hostile in the moment, but even afterwards, I was hostile to the discipline. I could tell he was being selfish. That he was just being annoyed. However, when my father would communicate to me that he loved me, and it was because of his love for me that he had to discipline me, Still in the moment, it was rough, but I always became receptive to that. My heart would change. See, when my dad would discipline me out of anger, my heart wouldn't change. My behavior may change, but my heart wouldn't. But when he communicated his love for me, my heart would change. This is the same with Paul. He has to communicate his love for the Philippian church. Why? He's calling them to, to live more like Jesus. He wants to see more and more righteous living come from them. And so he's he's asking for action and he's saying, I love you. And it's because I love you, I want to to see this from you. I love you deeply. I want to see you become more like Jesus. That's what Paul is communicating here. But notice who Paul ascribes, the, uh, the source of his love. Is it Paul's own love to which he's able to love the Philippians? Absolutely not. Look what he says, with the affection... Of Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing here is he's giving us the nature of God's love. God's love is something like an overflowing pitcher of water. And as that pitcher of water fills up a cup, the cup will fill and fill. Will the pitcher then stop flowing? Well, it's it's always flowing, so it does not stop. What happens then to the cup? The cup then fills up and it overflows. And it fills other cups. And those cups overflows. And over, This is the nature of God's love. Love springs from God Himself into believers, and it spreads. This is what's happening with Paul. Paul has been filled with the love of Christ, and his affection is pouring over for the Philippians. So the question then for us with it, uh, with this affection of Christ is, how, how then are we filled with the love of Christ? Well, uh, the I'm going to make a distinction between believers and unbelievers in the room. For believers, we, we are filled with the love of Christ by being honest with ourselves. We have received Christ. We have received new life. And, and we are called righteous. We are called saved. But we know we still struggle in our sin, right? We are not yet perfect. That will be realized later. But right now, we still live in this already but not yet, right? Right? And so what this means for the Christian is that we must be honest with ourselves in our sin. We still need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ every single day. We cannot go one day without the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we ever convince ourselves that we have got it, that we are righteous, that we... guess what if we think of ourselves that way we will think of other believers that way and then that's when we will fail to love people because they're not holding up to the perfect righteous standard but when you're honest with yourself and the grace you need every day you will see the grace that other people need every single day and you will extend that love to, to them as well that's how you're filled with the love of Christ that it may overflow to other people but if you're here this morning, and if you're not a believer, listen to me very closely. How you tap into God's love is receiving the Lord himself. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. How God, the Son of God, came down and paid the price for your sin. Because listen, there's always a payment for your sin. God's a righteous judge, and he requires judgment for sin. So you have one of two options. You get to pay for it, or you get to let Jesus pay for it. That's it. That's your two options. And I invite you to to take on Jesus. Be filled with his love. You do that through confessing of your sin, repenting of your sin, and accepting the Lord Jesus as as Lord of your life in faith that he is the Son of God who came to save you, to bring you back into relationship with Christ. If If you want to know more about that and you're here today and you're an unbeliever, please come talk to me after. I would love to guide you through that. But for the point being is is the source of love is coming from God. So after Paul gives his his yearning for the Philippians, we get into his actual request. Look look with me in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. What we just discussed is what Paul's request is. He He wants the Philippians' love to keep moving outward. Now, he doesn't give us the object of this love. So, I think it's safe here to assume that there's two objects of love here. Who, who are the Philippians to be loving? Well, just as God has served the example for Paul, Christ has served the example for Paul, and Paul the example for the Philippians, just as Christ loved his people in sanctification, but has also loved the world in salvation. That is the, the, the same is true of the church. The first people we are to love are each other. For the purposes of sanctification. This looks like fulfilling those all those one another's of the New Testament. You know, if you read the New Testament enough, you'll see things like forgiving one another or giving to one another, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, one another, serving one another. This is what love looks like played out in the body of the church that we fulfill in service to one another the spiritual gift that God has given you individually. And the idea here is that the, the more this church loves each other and has authentic relationship and love, it will shine as a beacon of light to the dark world. The world would, would be able to look at Corinth Baptist Church and be like, there's something different about those people. They love each other. They're authentic. They're genuine. And that's the second object of our, of our love: is that we would we would love the world for the purposes of salvation, not love the world for the purposes of delight, but love the world that they may come to Jesus. I love you. I don't want to see you perish eternally. Take the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, our love for one another is purposed for the for gospel proclamation. We love each other so that the world can know Jesus. It's not about me. It's about it's about him. It's about him being known. And so this is the request that, that they would that their love would abound more and more. Now notice here that Paul does not leave us without a qualifier of this love. He has to put handles on it. He says, with knowledge and all discernment. This is this is this is absolutely crucial to our culture today, is it not? Who defines what love is? God. First John chapter 4 eight. God is love. Listen to me, church, if you want to know what genuine love is, you have to know who God is. There's no other way. And any other any other form of love is inauthentic and untrue. It's fake. We know God through his word. We can look at God's actions in history and see him as a loving God. That includes a time where he extends grace and mercy, but it also includes a time where he extends punishment and judgment. We think, we think love is always this fluffy feel-goodness, right? Sometimes love is hard. We know that. We know God through his word. Now, if you want a good description of what love is, I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm not going to get into that this morning. we got too much to cover. Um, but what I do want to do is I want to give you the context of that chapter to help you formulate what Paul is talking about. Many of us have heard that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is called the love chapter. Uh, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. We Almost all of us could probably quote almost that entire chapter. Um, and most of us have heard it in the context, probably of a wedding, and it's, it is a beautiful verse to quote for a wedding. And it's, I think it's still true in that context. But the context of Corinthians for that chapter is, is Paul is actually talking about spiritual giftings. There was an argument about whether the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy was was better for the church. And Paul in chapter eleven, uh, chapter twelve, excuse me, he addresses the gift of tongues. In chapter 14, he addresses the gift of prophecy, but right in the middle, it's, it's really odd if you read it, he stops and talks about love. He was talking about spiritual gifts, and then he takes a break to talk about love. Why? Because the purpose of chapter 13 and love is that your spiritual giftings mean nothing if you're not loving one another. It's, it's clear the Corinthians were not loving one another well if they were, if they were willing to argue over this. They needed to love. For the purposes of the church. So I would encourage you at some point, if you haven't read it, to read it. If you have read it, read it again. That would help us to discern what love is. But let it be uh, said this morning that this is antithetical. This is opposite of what our culture wants to tell us. Love, in fact, is not love. God is love. The culture does not get to dictate what love is. God does, and we get to stand bold on the, on the foundation of the Scripture that we know what love is, and we get to communicate that to the world, to the lost. All right. So, uh, the, the, the petition of the prayer, what Paul asks for, is that their love would abound more and more for the purposes of, of sanctification inside the walls, and then eventually for the gospel proclamation outside of these walls. And so with that, uh, we move into the second part of our outline, which is the purpose of the prayer. Why does Paul ask this uh, from the Lord? Look with me again in verses 10 through the first part of 11. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We have a chain uh, sequence here. We have a chain reaction of, of, of the purpose of the prayer. The, the first chain sequence in loving one another is, is that first we would approve what is excellent. This is simply a better discernment of what is right versus what is wrong. Because you see, before Christ, we're stuck in our sin. We don't know what right is. And we need something external to come into us that is salvation By Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to show us now what is good. This discerning what is excellent is a transformation on two different levels. On the first level, it's a transformation of the mind. You now are able to know what is right and what is wrong. We know that through relationship with God, through fellowship with believers, and the Word of God. We know now what is right versus what is wrong, but there's still a problem here, right? Sometimes we don't really want to do that which is right, you know? We still have this thing called the flesh that we got to deal with, you know? Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7 and 8, how I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? transformation happens in our minds, that's pretty, pretty quick for most people. The slower change is, is here in the heart. This is, this is what typically we mean when we're talking about sanctification, that our desires will now be able to change to do that which is good versus what is bad. This is a much slower process than our minds. Sometimes our hearts, our, our hearts are a few steps behind where our head's at. Well, for some of us. Maybe not me in, in some cases. But our hearts, it's a transformation of the mind and the heart that we may discern what is good and then be able to do that. And as you walk in this, in this path of, of your Christian walking and sanctification, you should be able to look back and be, and be able to witness, wait a minute, I, I, I've been desiring that which is good way more than what I used to. I'm doing more, more good than what I used to. You see, righteousness is not something that we do to please God. It's the natural results of the walk with Christ. So if you, if you, if you look back on your life and you, you, you don't see an increase in righteous living, maybe we need to stop and think about that for a second. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's the, it's the natural result. So that way you may approve what is excellent and, and, and so be pure blameless for the day of Christ. What Paul does here is that he... he he puts our view and focus to the final day. What is the result of, of walking with Christ? Is that is that Christ will complete the work that he started. That was, that's in verse 6 of chapter 1 here. Christ will complete the work that he began in you. Sometimes we feel like we're toiling and we're striving uh, in this life to, to become more like Jesus. But, but there is hope, Christian, that it will be fulfilled and it will be completed in your life. You will look like Jesus one day. it will be righteous. It will all be set right i don 't know your struggles i don 't know what you 're walking through this morning, but take hope and take heart, Christian that it will be over you you 're toiling and you 're striving with sin in your flesh and your in, in your humanity and in this world will be over one day when, when we when we enlarge in our picture to to include Uh, God's victory in the end, it it helps to make our struggles seem here a little bit smaller, don't they? They're still tough. They're still challenging to walk through, but it just makes them feel just that much smaller. Oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that we would be with him. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. That comes through Jesus Christ. I want to reiterate this point again. I did mention it just a moment ago. But Paul here gives the nature of what righteousness is in the life of a Christian. I don't know if you've ever thought about the nature of a fruit, but the fruit is the natural product of something. You'll never walk into a cornfield and see an orange growing there, unless there's an orange tree. If there's an orange tree, there's not going to be any, any oranges there, is there? A pineapple tree will never grow apples, right? A soybean plant will never produce corn, right? A fruit is a natural product of something. And so uh, righteousness, again, is not something that we pursue on our own. It is simply the Lord's work in us as the natural result of being in relationship with him. That's the credit of where righteousness goes. goes. It goes to Jesus Christ, not to us. And so the purpose of the prayer is that we, would, that we would grow in our Christ-likeness, that we would grow in the sanctification, that we would be able to discern that which is good and be able to do it slowly and more and more and more as we walk in faith and in love with our Savior Jesus. Oh, what a great, great truth that is for the believer. The fruit of righteousness. And so, uh, with that being said, we, we move into the final point of our outline. What is all this for? What is, what is the end game? And the end game is ultimately that God would receive the praise and the glory. You see, what, what I think Paul does here is he recognizes the danger in living righteously among Christians. And you may be saying, what, there's a danger in being righteous? There's an absolute danger in being righteous in, among Christians is that you would take the credit for yourself, That's how broken we are. Do you realize that? That even in our sanctification process, and even in becoming more like Christ, we are still going to be prone to keep it for ourselves. To say, no, this is me, not you. Oh God, forgive us of our sin. Forgive me of my righteousness. Father, kill the flesh in me, and be Lord of my life. I need your grace every day. It's all for the glory and the honor and the praise of God. Our our lives are to exalt the one who gave us life. Who who chose not to leave us in our depravity, not chose not to leave us in our sin, chose not to leave us for dead. He could have left us for dead, y'all, but he didn't. And he's doing it all for his glory. He's doing it all for his glory. Our lives are, are, are to are to lift him up and 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 to to bring him the glory, honor, and praise, this is to be uh, exemplified to the world that god that God is the one to be praised and so w- with 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 that exposition, I want to give you just a few points of application, and then I'll be done first point of application I have for you is i I would challenge you as a church and as individuals to be. Um, constantly reminded of God's love for you. I don't know if you if you're like me, sometimes you can be really hard and down on yourself with your sin. And um, it, it can be easy to forget the grace that God has extended to you on, on a daily basis. Never forget God's love for you, Christian. Even on your darkest day, God loves you. And He, he always gives you another chance, another opportunity to, to, to come closer to Him to walk further into, in, in sanctification. The purpose of this is, is as Paul showed us, that when we're reminded of our love that we've received, we realize the love that other people need from, from God and from us. And we are able to walk in community and in life with one another. Be, be constantly reminded of God's love for you. You can do this through God's word, reminding yourself of the gospel every single day. God loves you. God loves you. Number two, I would challenge you to um, be a constant student of the Word. We mentioned earlier that our, uh, our, our concern is not with the, with the thoughts and the opinions of man, but rather with the thoughts and the opinions of God. And so uh, to do that, to know the thoughts and the opinions of God, you need to be a student of the Word. you got to know what God says. I, I, I grew up... Uh, a Christian my entire life and I can't tell you probably more than five times that I picked up the Bible before I graduated high school. Yeah, I claim Christianity. I claim to know the God who saved me, yet I didn't know anything about him. And Christianity is more than knowing things about God. You have to know God, but there still is the element of knowing things of God. He helps, you to, he helps us to discern what is right from what is wrong. And this helps in the context of the culture because the culture can be very persuasive, can it? It can be very, uh, there can be a lot of pressure from the culture to, to shift on your belief. But guess what? We have the firm foundation, the Word of God. That's why we're here this morning, right? This is the foundation. So Christian, be bold in what this says. This is what God says. For you to be bold in what God says to the culture, you got to know what it says. Be a student of the Word and and of the Word. Uh, there, there's even uh, I'm going to kind of pull pull out my grandmother here. I love my grandmother to death. She's a she's a, she loved the Lord so deeply, and I desire to have her faith. But she's so quick to recommend, you know, so many other authors and so many other Christian authors that that are good and helpful. But but sometimes we can even elevate human authors over the Bible. Can can we not? That can be a tendency, right? Even if they're good authors. I'm not not saying don't read these things, but I'm saying don't elevate them over the Word of God. Be a student of this right here. That's a challenge even for me as a seminary student. We have to read a bunch of different books from from a bunch of different men and women that love the Lord. I can't, it can't have a brighter voice than this right here. It cannot. Be a constant student of the Word. And then finally, be constant. Be constant in prayer. It's, it's pretty astounding to me that in this text, that Paul, who, who was involved in the planting of the church and, and was the caretaker of the church at Philippi, he himself is still asking the Lord to take care of the church. You realize no, no pastor, no minister can take care of the flock. Christ is responsible for the righteousness in you. No No leader. And so we must be constant in prayer, yearning, pleading to God to kill the flesh in us and to fill us with his spirit that we may walk in his ways. That's the only way it's going to happen, y'all. We can't do it on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And you do that through constant, constant prayer. Constant prayer. This is my challenge to you this morning. and I want to pray and then we'll be be done. Our God, we we're so humble and so thankful to be again in your presence this morning as believers. And we're thankful for your word that we get to stand boldly and confidently on your word, God. You're so good to us. And so Father, it is our request this morning that you would continue to, to do and and work toward the completion of your work in us. That you would formulate us into your into the likeness of your Son, Jesus, Father. Father, please get rid of us and fill us with you. This is our humble request, Father, so that we may love one another well, so that the world may know your gospel, and so that you may be glorified. Amen.